right, welcome everybody to yet another edition of Drunk Agile. As always, I am your co-moderator, Daniel Vacanti, and with me is... Pratik Singh. Um, we always have to get the formalities out of the way first. Um, Pratik, I think, I think it's become tradition now that you, that you start off and, and kind of tell us what, what you're drinking I think, tonight. I think, the is, I think the tradition is for us to first ask, do we pour first? <laughs> yeah, all right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, what do you have there? Today, I went with the whiskey with an E. It's an Old Forester 1920 Prohibition style. So done the exact same way they did it when for the 13 years that they didn't, they didn't have uh, the ability to do this. Com so com complete with making you go blind and everything? Is that Pretty much, yeah. I expect to because usually bourbons don't go this high in alcohol content. This is, this is 115 proof. So Wow. Okay. Um, that'll be a good night then tonight. Um, I went, un unfortunately or fortunately, this is this, because of the lockdown. This is the last of my good stash. Um, this is a 25, I'll try to get it to focus there. 25 year old Akintoshan bourbon barrel. Uh, we were talking earlier, because it's 25 years old, it's actually lost quite a bit of its, um, it's still cast strength, but it's lost a lot of bit of its alcohol. It's only a 44.8%. Um, but an Akintosh nonetheless, so um, it, will, it will be great. Um, so let me pour that. Let me get a nice big pour. And um, cheers, everybody. Cheers. That definitely looks, it, it, it looks like uh, a low alcohol Akintosh. <laughs> yeah. Mm. You can tell there's not much alcohol in that, which is both, I guess, good and bad. All right. So, um, I'm going to meet myself and call for a second. For tonight, uh, Pratik and I were having a debate before we went on the air tonight, um, trying to decide what we're going to do. And we, we figured the last couple of um, sessions that we've done, I don't even know what to call these things. Last couple of sessions that we've done have been, been a little bit heavy. So we thought we'd maybe take a little bit of a step back and talk about something that's a, um, kind of lighter, uh, but will hopefully set us up for some heavier content here. Um, in the not, not so distant future. So if we can review very quickly, again, assuming that we're putting these out in order because in full transparency, as of this recording, we haven't actually published anything yet. Um, <laughs> but assuming that we do publish in order, we've talked a lot about um, how teams collect the wrong data, you know, things like mm -hmm. story points, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and we've talked a lot about how um, when they, you know, when they collect the wrong data, they do stupid things with them. And even if they have good data, they do stupid things with, with, that, with that data. Um, but today we want to talk about probably an even bigger problem, probably a more foundational type, type problem. And that is, even when people are presented with the correct data, even when they're collecting the right data and they're inspecting that, that right data, people still do not make rational decisions based on that, that good objective data. They still behave wildly irrationally. Um, this, is, this is kind of the basis of modern behavioral economics and things like that, but, but to kind of kick us off, Pratik, I know you have a really, really good story that you'd like to tell that kind, of, that kind of explains this idea of acting irrational in the face of good objective data. Yeah, and this is, uh, this is actually, uh, I first heard this on on Malcolm Gladwell's uh, podcast, Revisionist History. And it, it, it kind of stuck with me because this is, this is the story of, of Will Chamberlain, essentially. And 
for those of you who don't know Will Chamberlain, probably the greatest basketball player of all time. I mean, he, at least in comparison to his contemporaries, he dominated the game. This guy was just incredible. He was uh, seven foot tall, I think, almost, and very agile for, and no, no pun intended, uh, for, for being seven, seven foot tall. And if you look at the top 19 to 20 um, all-time highest score in a game, like most points scored in the game, he shows up, I think, I think 12 to 14 times. I don't have the exact numbers. But he, he shows up 14, 12 to 14 times. And I mean, anyone looking, making a list of all-time basketball greats would put Will Chamberlain in, in, their, uh, in their list. Now, if that, that list of the top 20 most points scored in a game, Wilt being there 12 to 14 times, proves the point that this guy was very driven to score points. He, he, he really wanted to, to, to score a lot of points. Now, um, in fact, the top number, the top game, uh, the, mo uh, the highest, Dan, in fact, do you remember what was the what's the most number of points ever scored in a game, in in basketball? I want to say it was a hundred points. Yeah, it was it was just over a hundred. Yeah, I think 102? it was one hundred two. It was okay. one hundred two. Yeah, it's only happened once that that the hundred point barrier has only been broken by an individual once, and that was Will Chamberlain, uh, and I believe he was playing a team from New York. I think it was the Knicks. It might of have course it was the Knicks. I mean, who, who else would it be? <laughs> I think it was the Knicks that they were playing that okay. day. I, I can so, go to the Google and find out why, why you talk, because I'm not listening to you anyway. So. Yeah, I know. So go ahead. So, anyway, so he scores 102 points, and I think the second highest is somewhere, somewhere in the 80s. Um, there, there, there's something very interesting about that game, that he actually scores 102 points, while the second highest is somewhere in the 80s. 80s um, and there's a big, that, that big almost 15, 20 point jump is because of just one very specific reason. Um, and, and usually when we're doing this as, as a talk, we'll ask the, the audience to guess and people guess all kinds of things as the Knicks were particularly bad. Well, they were bad that year. They just weren't that bad. They were still an, an NBA team. Um, or, you know, he just had a hot hand. I mean, this guy is really good. 100 points is, is way beyond a hot hand. So, so just to clarify, I looked it up on Wikipedia because, of course, you can trust everything that you read. Everything. Kid, kids watching at home always trust everything that you read on Wikipedia because it's the font of all wisdom. Um, it was a 100-point game. I was right. Uh -huh. Just for the record, I was right. It was 100 points. Uh, and it was against the Knicks. Knicks, yeah. Um, in 1962. Yep. So. 1963, yeah. And, 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 and those, uh, those, there, there were a few, I think 63 was a year that um, Chamberlain averaged over 50 points a game uh, yeah well, it was it was 1962 and he did 50.4 points per game yep yeah 50.4 yep. points a game i mean that <laughs> that's imagine that mean. just 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 walking <laughs> hey it's a regular night i'm gonna score 50 points today yeah, right i mean there, there might be some flop averages stuff happening there but still on a given night um there's a 50 percent chance that this guy goes out and, make, and scores 50 or more points but Okay, so that particular night, he scored 100 points. And again, people guess all kinds of reasons why he scored it. There was, but there was really one reason. Um, he was actually shooting underhand. He was shooting his free throws underhand. 
For those of you who don't know what a free throw is, when there's a foul in, in, in basketball, um, the, the, the person being, who has been fouled goes to what's called a free throw line and no one can do any defense and they just throw the ball up to, to get into that. It's probably the easiest thing. If you are a professional bas basketball player, that should, be the, that should be just, well, I was going to say that should be a slam dunk. <laughs> that should be as easy as a slam dunk. I mean, that's literally what you get paid to do. Show up, throw, uh, go up there and shoot free throws. And Will Chamberlain, for, for, for a year or so, tried this technique of actually shooting the free throws underarm rather than overarm. Usually you'll see, any of you watch basketball, you'll see them on the line throwing the, throwing the ball in overarm. He tried to throw an underarm for a while. And what that did was his usual free throw efficiency, the percentage of time he made free throws, was around 51, 52%. That night, it was around 85, 86%. So by switching to, to shooting underarm, to shooting free throw underarm, he gets the average points per game up to 50, up above 50. And he gets this free throw accuracy of 86%. Um, it is, it's a no-brainer. It's a no-brainer to, to say, all the data is there. We see this. Let's keep doing this. Uh, in fact, just the slight, slight aside, uh, if you guys, from, from more recent times, uh, Shaquille O'Neal was just a horrible free throw shooter, great basketball player, horrible free throw shooter. And essentially what would happen is teams would start fouling him so that he has to go to the free throw line and miss the free throws. And that's what, that's what would happen to Will Chamberlain too, because he was shooting overhand. And his coach literally said, if you were not a bad free throw shooter, we would win every game. Because what you would have to do is take Will Chamberlain off, like your best player on the team towards the end of the game, you have to take him off because people will just keep fouling him to make him ineffective. Now, all that aside, all that background aside, guess what Will Chamberlain does um, after that season is over? Well, of course, he looks at all the data. He looks at how well he did shooting those underhand free throws. And he said, wow, this is working for me. I'm going to continue to do it. And I'm going to continue to, to shoot underhand. Of course, that's what he did, right? That's, that's, that's yeah, just, just like... Just like most of us uh, in software development, we see something going great. Uh, we make a change, see it going great, and that's what we stick to. Um, yeah, actually, he does the exact opposite. He, he, he switches back to overhand. Uh, he's, he made a statement like it made him feel like a sissy shooting mm -hmm. underarm because it's, it's literally called the grandma shot, and, and he didn't want to be taking the grandma shot. So um, he... He switches back and his, his efficiency falls down again on the free throws. And he never gets to that 100-point game again. His, his, as, as more, he has a bunch of scores in the 80s, never gets to the 100 again. And yeah, he's just, he switches off. And in fact, later on in his autobiography, he says, that was a mistake. That he, he, much, much later on, he acknowledges that that was a mistake and that was just the wrong move. In the face of data, he makes the wrong decision. So, and we, we saw this over and over and over again, because um, for those of you who don't know, Pratik and I, um, well, I worked with Pratik at a company called Ultimate Software for, I don't know, four-ish years. Um, uh, and early on, one of our jobs was to retrain. So, 
So um, Ultimate Software had been doing Kanban for a while, um, but one of our early jobs was to retrain all the teams to give, give them a refresher on Kanban. And the first day of our Kanban class would be, um, would be all this theory and all this data to support theory, you know, hands-on exercise and hands-on data to support the theory of why lowering work, in general, lowering work in progress is a good thing. And in the afternoon of the first day, we would have teams play this, play the simulation. You know, uh, for those of you, again, for those of you who are familiar, it, it's, it was called the Get, the Get Kanban game, the Get Kanban simulation. And as part of the Get Kanban simulation, at some point you have an opportunity, the teams themselves have an opportunity to control their work in progress limits, to, to either raise them or, or lower them. And so having spent, you know, all, I don't know, what, six hours in a class learning about why lower whip is better, lower whip is better, lower whip is better, when they get to the Get Kanban game and they have an opportunity to change their work in progress limits, 95% of the time, the, the, the first thing that they did was to raise those work in progress limits. It was the very first thing they did. Um, it freaked them out, you know, to think that, wow, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm only working on a couple of things at a, you know, at a time, even though all the data uh, and all these exercises have showed me that that's actually, uh, that, that, that's the right thing to do. Now, the astute listener out there could be saying, well, maybe this should really just speaks to the quality of Dan and Pratik's <laughs> training, and there's probably yeah, some, okay. some truth to that. Um, but 95%, that's a pretty clear signal, I think. Yeah. <laughs> and it might even been higher. It might have even been like 98, 99%. It's like yeah. only every once in a while do we get a team that would, would on their, their first. Or, and and you, we see this all the time in practice. You know? um, how many times have we gotten testimonials from managers you know, that were coaching you know, when they lower work in progress, how good things are, and the second we leave and we go to work with another team and we go yeah. back six months later, They've raised all their work in progress limits. So, I, I, that that is that that to me is the most interesting part. Is it's because you know I I kind of get it because you know I'm I'm a slow learner, so maybe the first five or six hours did not sink in, but especially when we and and because it was all exercises and fake data, it did not sink in in the class. But especially when we work with managers day to day for a course of a month or two and they see their own data, they see their own uh, work reflect how well they're doing by lowering WIP, and then they go back and, and up their WIP limits again, uh, that used to baffle my mind. I mean, I, I, that just did not make any sense whatsoever. And then as, as, as uh, we discovered the, 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 the realm of behavioral economics and uh, all these examples of people making bad decisions in the face of good data, um, it just made more and more sense that they're just being human. They had just have been trained to do this. Yep, so for, for people who haven't heard about the whole behavioral economics thing, um, for the, and I'm grossly oversimplifying here, so please no nasty comments or emails or whatever about this, but generally speaking, classical economics is, is built upon the premise that on average, anyway, people people behave rationally. You know, pre presented presented with the right information um, at the right time, that people will make rational decisions. And um, modern experiments have shown us, time after time, that that is simply not the case. Um, that 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 humans, you know, um, for the most part, they they a lot of times they don't even have the right data. But when they do have the right data, 
they will not not behave rationally. They would not not behave a, a, as you might expect. Um, and you know, there's a whole bunch of behavioral science and you know biases and, and things like that that we, we can talk about that we can bore, bore you to death with. Um, but this is, I think, one of the fundamental problems with um, you know agile in general, but but methodologies like Kanban and Scrum in particular, like Scrum, it's right in the Scrum guide. But Scrum says it's built on empirical process control. It's like yep. it's it's totally built on empiricism, which is a wonderful thing. The problem is again, there's an assumption that you know people will automatically behave empirically, that they will number one grab the right data, and then based on that data they will make the right decisions. You can't make that assumption. Kanban's the same thing, you know that. People will understand. Well, well, you know, they'll rationally get that. Hey, lowering whip is better, and focusing on on cycle times and delays is a good thing. And you know, it's better to have you know good flow efficiency as opposed to good resource efficiency, and all these things. There's all kinds of data to support these things. Uh, but again, you know, faced in their day to day lives, people will just not behave what we would expect from a from a rational expectation. Yeah, and 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 just just to. Just for the listeners out there, the, you you made you made two points there, which which I think are are critical. One is um, that we don't always collect data, uh, the ideal data, and two was even when we do collect the ideal data, we don't behave um, in the ideal manner. And and I, I love the, the 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 name of the talk that you came up with, to which was a, a twist on. On scrums, inspect and 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 adapt the inept and inapt, where we're inept at gathering the right data, but even when we are, do gather the right data, we we use it in inapt ways. Yeah, um, and so there's there's uh, and and this is where where things get get a little murkier, but I think this is going to set us up for the next talk. Is um, there's an even more kind of probably important problem that we haven't discussed because right now we've been talking about you know it's kind of binary do we have the right data or don't we have the right data right we've kind of been been in that world um where in the the real world's much messier it's 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 mm -hmm. there's a lot lots lots more shades of gray you know it, you know if you will and that is um especially when we're talking about forecasting especially when we're talking about making decisions um generally speaking those types of activities are dominated by uncertainty right that we don't we, you know, we we could do the whole Donald Rumsfeld thing or whatever, but mm -hmm. <laughs> um, there is there is so much uncertainty in terms of what we know and what, in terms of what we don't know that it makes making decisions that much harder. So, you know, the fir the first part of this this conversation has been about well, you know, either we have the data or we don't. Well, what about in these worlds where we have imperfect information or incomplete information or whatever, and there's a whole bunch of uncertainty? Um, I don't know. <laughs> Uh, without giving away the punchline, because I think the punchline is a later talk. Yep. I mean, can you say something about how how humans behave in those in those circumstances? I think I think we're we're, we're I think we're generally um, threatened by uncertainty, or, or at least our 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 mindset becomes completely wrapped when we talk about uncertainty. And and we've seen that even in the in the in the latest um, crisis with with the pandemic with with mm. COVID. There's so much uncertainty. Is this thing going to continue? Are, are we going to stay on lockdown? Is are we going to go back into lockdown? And I, yes, the 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 being quarantined has its own effect on the uh, uh, on on how people think. But just the whole discuss the uncertainty discussion and not knowing when something is going to happen 
I think it 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 messes with the with people's minds, and we're not comfortable with uncertainty. As humans, we're not, and we're used to getting certain answers rather than uncertain answers. And that's kind of why all the stuff you were talking about, all the how do we forecast, how do we plan, all that stuff becomes um, becomes a harder conversation because we're not used to, we try to do certain conversations instead of uncertain conversations. Yeah. Um, there is a, um, to kind of, kind of foreshadow what we're going to be, what we're going to be talking about. If we, if we haven't mentioned Annie Duke before, we, we probably should have, mm -hmm. but I, I'm sure, I'm sure we have talked about Annie Duke at some point. We have. I'm sure we have. Absolutely. And her book, Thinking in Bets. Um, but she's got a good, I don't know if it's, if, is, is it a TED talk? I don't know if it's a TED talk or, or something. Yeah, some, some, some talk out there. And I, I believe it's called Risk Schmisk. Um, I think it's a, that one's a TED talk, yeah. I think, yeah, it's, it's a TED talk. And, you know, it's, it's, it's this idea, and I wish I, wish I could remember the, the gentleman's name. Um, I know he worked for an investment group. Um, but she, Annie Duke was talking to this, this gentleman and asking him, you know, because when, when we talk about uncertainty, risk and uncertainty kind of go hand in hand, especially when we're talking about forecasting, especially when we're talking about planning, those, those types of things. And, uh, you know, Annie Duke asked him, what's what's the biggest risk, right? What, you know, out there in your mind, what is the biggest risk? And I believe without hesitating, I think, I think he answered it, you know, immediately. And he said, the, biz the biggest risk is believing you have a winning strategy when you have a losing one. Yep. Um, and honestly, if, 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 I, if I think all Agilists out there could understand that, because there's a lot packed into that statement, <laughs> you know, um, but if all Agilists out there could understand that, you know, that you have to go in, assuming this is, this is kind of, I'm riffing on your, your, your line here. I'm stealing your thunder. Um, you have to go in assuming you're wrong, right? And kind of one of the whole points of Agile is trying to figure out how wrong you are as quickly as possible. Mm -hmm. um, because you can't assume that you've got a winning strategy because there's, you know, as good a chance, if not better chance, that you've got a losing one. So we need to find out that as quickly as possible. Yeah, and, and to... And, um... To quote another author, author um, uh, Taleb's anti-fragility concept, I think applies perfectly here because he talks about uh, not fragile, not agile, but anti-fragile, which, which essentially is things that get stronger when, um, when they're in chaotic situations or when, when they're disturbed. And assuming that you're wrong puts you in that spot where you can only be become less wrong as opposed to assuming you're right where you start becoming old you can only become more wrong when things happen so yeah, yeah you we want we would want you to design your system in a way and again this is a lot packed into one statement design your system in a way that it gets better when you're proven wrong rather than it gets worse when you're proven wrong right so I think that our next couple of talks, um, we're going to do a much deeper dive on this concept of, um, you know, we're trying to make decisions in, in the face of uncertainty. We think we're right and we're behaving in a way that we think we're right when all along we're, we're probably wrong, you know, and it would have been better to embrace this idea of our world is dominated by uncertainty and, you know, we should be able to, to pivot or shift quickly you know, once, once we get that, that better information. So, um, 
we've kind of been talking at a very, very high level tonight. I don't know, is there, are there any other, other topics that you want to cover to kind of set us up for? I, mean, I, would, I, would just, I would just add, and this is just something that has been in, on my, in my mind for the past couple of days, which is the way people try to get around that risk, uh, get around that uncertainty is to, is to spend a lot more time um, estimating and planning. And all you're doing is is setting is trying to convince yourself that you are more right than you can possibly be. At the same time, you spend all this time on it, which again, coming back to the behavioral science part of it, is there's, there's something called a sunk cost fallacy, which, which essentially, because we have spent all this time doing this, because we have spent all this effort doing this, we are married to this plan now. And... Uh, the more time you spend doing that and less time you spend actually working, <laughs> the worse things get. Um, yeah, it's, we'll, it's one we'll of the, definitely be exploring that a lot more. Yeah, it's one of, one of the great paradoxes of, um, of uns dealing with uncertainty is that um, by spending more time upfront planning, by tr more, spending more time upfront trying to design or solve the problem, you're actually making things worse rather than better, even though in your mind, um, you think you're making things better. That's the whole, you think you have a winning strategy, but you actually have, have a losing one. And there's kind of a, there's a, uh, I don't know, corollary or, or, or something to the, the, the sunk cost fallacy. And maybe we maybe should dedicate a whole episode to sunk cost fallacy in Agile. I'm sure there's, there's all kinds of things. But there's one that kind of goes along with that. And that's the idea that because we spent a whole bunch of time on something, the more, the more time you spend on something, the more mm -hmm. valuable you think it is in your mind, the more valuable yeah. you think it is. Yeah. So it's, it's different in sunk costs and sunk costs is pretty much throwing good money after bad. Um, this is more, I, because I've spent a whole bunch of time on it, it must be valuable, right? It yeah. must, it, it must have some intrinsic value that, that can be used. And I think, I think in, in knowledge work, it's, it's, it's time and also it's, uh, it's kind of, cognitive capacity that has been spent on it effort yeah any yeah. type of effort or whatever yeah absolutely yeah. Yeah. absolutely so um i mean i kind of gave you the last word but i don't know if you want to <laughs> if you want to sum up I, I will officially give you the last word now if you, if you would like to take it yeah well i mean i think i think what, what we've talked about today mostly is even in the light of data people make bad decisions and um we, we need to figure out how to not necessarily avoid bad decisions, but, but essentially reduce the cost incurred by bad decisions. Essentially set ourselves up for good decisions with as little effort as possible, but know that we're gonna make bad decisions and reduce the cost of those bad decisions. Absolutely, and I think for, it's either going to be the next episode or the one after, um, the classic example that we are going to use to kind of demonstrate the point that Pratik just mentioned, um, is how um, agilists think about value, right? And, you know, how we make decisions around value, how we prioritize based on value, you know, et, et, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's, to me, it's, it's, it's one of the, the, the best examples, in my humble opinion, um, of how flawed most agile people's thinking is, you know, on, on, on this topic. But you'll have to come back for, you know, next time or, or the time after to get the answer, you know, around that. So... Well, um, there's still the promise of there's still a promise of at least one more sports analogy. Yeah, at least at least <laughs> at least one more. 
And unfortunately, I might have to start switching with, for those talks, I might have to start switching to whiskey with an E, which is a little bit dis disappointing. Um, but um, again, for, for Drunk Agile, um, I'm your co-host, Daniel Bacanti. Again, with me was, uh, was my pleasure to have uh, Pratik Singh. Uh, enjoy the rest of your night. Keep drinking whiskey. And we will see you on the next episode. Good night. <laughs>